Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. It's Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle, and I'm Lorenzo Marasso. My guest today is uh, Jason Hoheim, who was appointed principal timpanist of the Metropolitan Orchestra in 2013. In addition to performances at New York's Lincoln Center at Carnegie Hall, Mr. Hoheim can be seen and heard performing with the Met Orchestra on television, international radio, and live in HD movie theaters broadcasts. Mr. Hoheim is on faculty at the Board, Board Conservatory of Music. A sought-after clinician, Mr. Hoheim gives masterclasses both nationally and internationally and is the founder of the Northland Timpani Summit, the Deliberate Practice Boot Camp, and the Artful Timpani Auditioning Seminar. He's also a frequent coach for the orchestra now, the Carnegie Hall National Youth Orchestra, and the New York Youth Symphony. Mr. Hoheim's guest principal timpanist engagements have included the All-Star Orchestra, the Seoul Philharmonic in Korea, the Mostly Mozart Festival Orchestra, and the Milwaukee Symphony. He is the principal timpanist of the Lakes Area Music Festival and has also been a resident artist of the Twickenham Festival. Prior to the Met, Mr. Hoheim was a principal timpanist of the Southwest Michigan Symphony and the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, and he performed regularly as timpanist with the Madison Symphony, Illinois Symphony, Peoria Symphony, Fort Wayne Philharmonic, and the Illinois Philharmonic. Mr. Hoheim began studying piano in fourth grade, adding percussion studies in fifth grade. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree with double major in honors music performance and, big surprise, physics from Gustavus Adolphus College, St. Peter's in Minnesota. He also holds a master's degree in electrical engineer from UC Santa Barbara. While auditioning and freelancing, Mr. Hoheim worked as a senior research and development engineer at Nano Inc., a Chicago area tech company. In this capacity, he gave invited talks on nanotechnology, authored multiple peer-reviewed publications, and was granted numerous pat patents. Active in many musical areas, Mr. Hoheim has also performed extensively as a chamber musician and jazz drummer. He also collaborated with Yo-Yo Ma in a civic orchestra slash Silk Road ensemble performance and recorded the premiere of Augusta Reed Thomas' Terpsichore's Dream with members of the Chicago Symphony. Mr. Hoheim has performed with Chicago's ensemble Dal Niente and premiered Ryosuke Siagi's Mirrors for Timpani with the US UCSB Ensemble of Contemporary Music. 
Other projects have included drumming for the Jazz Fusion Quartet, the J3 Intent, and the old country band The Lost Cartographers. At Gustavus, Mr. Hauheim was selected with the honors recital and won first place in the orchestra's concerto competition. Extra musical interests include backpacking and hiking, rock climbing, and both downhill and cross-country skiing. So welcome, Jason. It's great first to connect with you finally and then to have you on my radio program. So welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, Lorenzo. So you've been interviewed many, many times. And so it what comes out always in those interviews is that you have this double major. You majored in engineering, you majored in music, and then you became, after a long period, you became principal timpanist of the Met. And then you explained that you were able to do this by not just practicing a lot, but practicing in a certain intelligent way that you called a deliberate practice. And then, you know, you reached your goal in 2013 when you became principal timpanist. Would you retrace a little bit this kind of path, which is kind of unusual for every every other professional musician. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm happy to because this is this is always the first question because I've had this very unorthodox route to the Met Orchestra. And um, I think in a way, I, to start, I would be remiss not to honor one of my most important mentors who is um, Anders Ericsson himself, Dr. Dr. Ericsson, who was one of the key researchers behind this concept of deliberate practice. Um, he spent decades of his career as a psychologist looking into this and really documenting what it was that expert performers around the world in all kinds of different disciplines were already doing. And I was incredibly fortunate in the last uh, few years to get to collaborate with with people would call him Dr. Erickson, but he was always such a warm, generous fellow that he, he would say, no, 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 honors, please. So I got to collaborate with honors, with, with honors, and it was um a real, I mean, kind of career highlight. He passed away suddenly last summer in June of 2020. And that, that was, that was a tough thing in an already tough summer. But, um, you know, there are a lot of ways in which my unorthodox route was, you know, not, not just because of his research, but because I encountered his work, his research, and it's not just him. I mean, there's many people in psychology that are that are researching deliberate practice, and this is now a, a well-known term of art in in higher ed. But it, he he writes with such clarity and concision, particularly his book Peak, that he co-wrote with uh, author Robert Poole. Um, you know, it, it, this this research of his was really. A, a major pivot point in my life and career because it was when I started to realize that, oh, I, you know, to be an effective musician, which is not just, you know, having chops, right? But like, but like really, really developing an artistic personality and, and saying something as a musician, I can leverage the skills I already have as a scientist. There's, there's a way in which Erickson and his co-authors will talk about deliberate practice as essentially the scientific method applied to your craft, where that craft can be tennis or timpani or chess, and that there's a lot of these common ties that bind how people approach that craft refinement. And so for me, like right around 2007, 2008 is when I first started encountering these concepts, and it was... A, a total ignition point for me, realizing that, oh, I've been thinking about the actual process of practicing 
my whole life in this really naive, inefficient, binary way, right? Like, like you're either practicing, you're not like it's an on off light switch. Like Mm -hmm. you go in the practice room and you do an hour or not. But one of Anders key insights was that it's actually the quality of the practice and what you're doing in there that matters so much more than just the sheer quantity and that that quality can be something that you study and, and refine Mm -hmm. and you can give it a methodology that is much, much more sophisticated than most people realize so that, you know, for me, it included things like getting continuous feedback in a lot of different ways, recording myself every day, playing for other people, especially non-percussionists and non-timpanists, because your listeners may or may not know that when we go audition for ensembles, there are committees often of 10 to 13 people. um, And these committees are composed of a majority of people who don't play my instrument. And so my job in auditioning is to be persuasive to wind players and brass players and string players. And yes, percussionists and timpanists, but the majority is that group. And so realizing like how I needed to operate and, and proceed getting this kind of feedback and, and, you know, even employing kind of these skills of empathy to be like, well, what what is a flute player going to think about this passage that I just played? Or how, how are the trumpets going to react to how I just phrased this? It was all bound together in this methodological approach that had, you know, rigor and discipline. And I was like, oh, I, I've already been doing this in my engineering lab as, as a scientist. I just need to do it in the practice room. And that's the, the you know... The quick version of how I went from a nanotech nerd with hopes and dreams to a principal timpanist of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. rehearsal on KBFG Seattle and I'm your host Lorenzo Marasso. My guest today is percussionist and uh, Metropolitan Opera principal timpanist Jason Hoheim. 
And you have just listened to an excerpt from the Dies Ire of Giuseppe Verdi's Requiem performed by the Metropolitan Orchestra with our guest Jason Hoheim. I'm curious to know when, for you in particular, what was the moment in which you, just, you, you thought that you could make it? or say, I want to, I want to take, <laughs> or you're still thinking that. You know, man, I'm still waiting for that point. I'm like, when am I going to make it? Like, oh, been out of work all this time. No, but no, I mean, in all seriousness, I think, I think it's, um, it's a really, really good question because uh, there's actually this interview I saw where um, the comedian Paul F. Tompkins was interviewing another comedian at Helms. Mm-hmm. And the thing Ed Helms was saying is, is basically exactly this idea. He's like, you start off with this idea that like someday you're going to make it and it's just going to be done. And that's just not true. And, yeah. and like you get to one point and you realize, oh, now there's a new challenge or there's a new problem or there's new tumult or turbulence. And then you make it to the next one and the next one. And, you know, Helms was describing like, okay, well, he got on The Daily Show and then he was in the Hangover movies. And it's just like it's, it's sort of all of these like false horizons that are a mirage and, and you just keep going. Yeah. And and so for me, um, I, I do feel like it's this like endless process of continually trying to make it more. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, but, but I'm sure. But I mean, I think the, fir- the first time, you, you know, you when, when you got appointed, you, you thought. This is a great place to be, right? You know, uh, making music with this, with this I will never forget in this great building. And yeah, I mean, I'll never forget one of my one of my dear friends and and mentors, uh, Dean Borgazzani, who's the principal timpanist of the Milwaukee Symphony. Um, you know, after I, I got the results back from the Met audition, and you know, they informed me, well, the committee picked you. And I mean, I was, I was like in shock. I almost couldn't believe what was happening. It was a kind of out-of-body experience. And you were still working as a nanotechnologist at that time. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So you were That's going to right. an office, you were going to a lab every day. Lab every day. Um, yeah, so it took some PTO to go audition for the Met. And, and then won. And, and I'll never forget, like shortly after that, I mean, I think it was the next day, um, I was talking to Dean. And he said something like, hey, buddy, this is amazing. Like, you made it. A, a job, like a tenured position at the Metropolitan Opera, there's nothing more stable and secure than that. Well, well, <laughs> we know how that's been for the last 18 months. But nevertheless, I mean, yeah, it is it is a major milestone. It's a major inflection point. And I think, you know, answering your question a bit more honestly is that, you know, prior to arriving at the Met, I had, you know, multiple milestones or, or sort of inflection points that started pointing more and more toward my focus on wanting to do instrumental performance as my career, like as a way to, to make a living instead of science. And, you know, I, I got a really late start by most musical standards. Um, and the first one of these inflection points was like quite literally when I went to summer camp and I was trying to impress a girl and she asked me if I was going to the all state orchestra and I lied and I said, yes. And I just, cause I had no idea what she was talking about at that point. I was mainly just like playing in a garage band with my friends, like, you know, Nirvana and stuff like that. Okay. But that was what motivated me to start taking percussion lessons. Love. Mm, hormones. <laughs> okay. We'll be more honest. Um, 
No, it was actually a lovely relationship, yeah, and yeah, we, yeah. we. I mean, the scientist was the the the, the scientist would, would say hormones. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, and and then the the next one came, you know. So that that's sort of like um, in deliberate practice research, they'll talk about like ignition points, right? Like here's here's a spark, here's something that gets you interested in a thing, and that was that was a very legitimate one. And so you know, I I got more into music. I was playing with the Greater Twin Cities Youth Symphony and. You know, kind of realizing like, oh, I, I do love this. I love playing and the craft and everything, you know, way that goes beyond teenage hormones. And um, so that led me to going to, you know, my my undergrad at this small private liberal arts college in Minnesota called Gustavus Adolphus. And that's where I so I decided to double major in physics and music. I'd always kind of thought like, I'll, I'm sure I'll do physics because I was like into that since I was a kid. My dad taught high school physics, so I had that influence in my life. But then I got there and I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add the music thing in too because both of these things are important to me. The next major point was I was already in grad school for electrical engineering at UC Santa Barbara. Um, I passed my PhD qualifying exams. I was doing all this. One of my friends kind of noticed that I was like bummed out because <laughs> I wasn't getting to do music as much. And they're like, hey, you know, you should consider doing a summer festival like like, you know, Aspen or something like that. And I was like, huh, interesting idea. So checked into it, took a bunch of lessons, made a CD. It got in, surprisingly. <laughs> I still have the CD. I've, I've listened to it. It would not get by today. Like it would definitely get caught. The, the level of playing has just risen way too much. Um, but nevertheless, I had this experience that summer of seeing real flesh and blood musicians. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like prior to that, I had gone to see the Minnesota Orchestra as a kid. And, you know, a timpanist like Peter Kogan was amazing to me. But I put, I, you know, I kind of put him on this pedestal. And I was like, well, he's this naturally talented godlike figure. And I, I can never do that. I mean, how could I? I got such a late start. You know, I've gotten bad grades and band like, you know, what? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to be doing that. And when I was at Aspen, I, I started to see the cracks in that flawed mythology. I started to see that. Oh, no, these are real human beings showing up to rehearsals in T-shirts and shorts and flip flops yeah. and like making occasional mistakes and just being human. Yeah. And I was like, maybe. Hmm. And and honestly, after that, I just I kind of knew that's where my heart was. My heart wasn't in the the engineering grind and like, you know, spending my days trying to squeeze another few milliwatts of efficiency out of some sort of like, you know, molecular beam epitaxy created LED. Situ- and I'm just like, oh, this, no, this is not not for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to do this other thing that I love. But at that time, I had a job offer at this company in Chicago. And I thought, okay, I'll take the job. Chicago's cool because you know, I love the city. Got a lot of friends there. Um, great people to study with there. And the Civic Orchestra is this training orchestra opportunity. And that could give me a next step to shoot for in this process. And it was, it was along the way there that I sought out... Uh, another uh, teacher who became, you know, a, a dear colleague and mentor of mine, John Tafoya, who is the director of percussion at Indiana University. 
And he agreed to take me on as basically a private student. And so I would drive, you know, four and a half hours from Chicago down to Bloomington, Indiana. And after a few lessons, he said, you know, I just read this book called Talent is Overrated. Mm -hmm. And I think it might be right up your alley. You should check it out. And, and I did. And I devoured this. And it was, you know, at that point, certainly the most important book I ever read in my life. Because it was the first mass market book that was taking these decades worth of Erickson's research and translating it for a general audience. Basically telling me as the scientist, hey, buddy, you can do your lab thing, scientific method, apply it to this craft of timpani and get much better, much faster. Mm -hmm. And it was from that point onward that things really started to turn around and change. And, you know, not only was I enjoying music making more, but I started consistently advancing at auditions and getting better feedback from the people I was playing for, et cetera, et cetera, until this sort of like momentum builds. And, you know, I think I think one thing that's difficult for young musicians to hear is that no one can promise you that this is going to work out. Right. Like no one can promise you you're going to win an audition. Yeah. It's just simply too competitive. There's too much randomness. There's too much um, competition in the world, really. It's the same way nobody can promise you you're going to win a gold medal at the Olympics. Yeah. What you can do is train such that you have the best odds. Yeah. And so I got to a place where I thought, okay, I don't know that this is going to work out, but like, I feel like the odds are pretty good. Like I'm getting to these final rounds of auditions frequently enough that like, if I just stick with it, make this sustainable, um, maybe the stars are going to align, you know? And I, sometimes I even think about it like, you know, if people are into like high stakes poker games where, you know, the minimum bet is like 50 grand or something. So like, it's this really elite level of people who can even get to the table. Uh -huh. And then yeah. once you're there, you wait to be dealt a good hand. And that's how you play the game. Yeah. And that's kind of how I felt at that phase, like 2011, 12. And then, yeah, the Met audition was January 18th, 2013. And on that day, my life changed dramatically. I remember reading about how many auditions did you actually do before winning the Met? So tw the Met was my 28th. So you never gave up for like 27 times. Uh, you, there was always something that prompted you to go to the next audition and try again and, and, and play your, you know, your cards. Yeah. Well, you know, I, and I told my students this too. It's like, I just decided I was going to be a really tenacious loser. The reality is too, the, you know, I, I even did a study at the Met Orchestra about this, but I mean, for anyone who's playing in a major orchestra, the statistics are inarguable. Like everyone has lost far more auditions than they've won. That's just the reality. And so it's not just coping with failure. It, it's that you have to, to turn around your entire framework to interpret each of these processes and auditions or job interviews or whatever as this much bigger process of like continual growth and feedback and improvement. That Because that's like the only way to stay sane. Otherwise, it just becomes too soul crushing because, yeah, you're like audition number 26 and you're just like, oh. <laughs> I walked away empty handed again, you know. <laughs> Were there any other groups that you would have, uh, maybe it's uh, insidious questions, but in your 28, 27 audition prior to the match, were there any groups that you really felt like you, you wanted to be with them? You know, that is a really interesting question because um, 
I think some some people in my field would say yes. Some people would say, you know, I had I had my sights set on this group and, you know, that was my compass heading and I just did that and did that and did that and got it. And those people exist, but I mean, they are the vast minority Uh because you you really don't get to pick again in this situation where we have such oversupply. Right. If we put this in economic terms, there's something like 10,000 music performance degrees granted every year in the United States for roughly 250 job openings for all instruments across all full-time orchestras. You know, this is a beggars can't be choosers situation. And so especially as a timpanist where there's only one of us in the orchestra, I'd be lucky if there were like three or four auditions in a given year. So you just have to take every audition that comes along. Yeah. And what was very interesting is that in the year before the Met audition, um, I auditioned for orchestras that paid $25,000 a year, like below poverty level. I would have taken that job. I auditioned for mid-range orchestras. I got to the uh, finals in the Chicago Symphony. I didn't even get invited to the St. Louis Symphony. They were just like, no, no, thanks. You know, yeah. this is what I mean. This is this is the randomness that happens. Yeah. Um, you know, got got further in Detroit, got further in Baltimore. And, and, and then and then for me, it was just the stars aligned at the Met. And then in 2020, something else happened. Right. So from the you called it a whiplash, um, you know, this moment when uh, we, we don't yeah. go very much into it. But what I'm interested in talking more, it's the let's call it the positive or the optimistic. Well, I don't, I know you don't like that word either, but <laughs> the, the more positive aspects of the last 18 months, if there are yeah, any. Well, and, and, and forgive me for like waxing a little more philosophical here, but yeah, I think in the last 18 months, we've all had time to introspect and try and just derive any meaning from this, I mean, truly unspeakable tragedy. I'm just going to be real for you and your listeners. I mean, I played the last performance I did at the Met was March 11th, Cosi Fontuti, Mozart's great opera. Ironically, that was like this bookend because that was also the first opera I ever performed at the Met. Oh, wow. And I just had this weird feeling, this gut feeling that night that's like, I think this is all going to get shut down. And sure enough, March 12th was when Lincoln Center announced it was shutting down due to the coronavirus and Broadway and everything else. And it was like just a matter of days after that, that New York City went into full lockdown. Well, I remember my friend, violist Vinny Leonti, he was he was playing. He was coughing. We're like, what's going on? We've heard about this thing called the coronavirus. Well, Vinny died. I mean, he he was one of the people, one of my colleagues that got COVID and died in the spring of 2020. It's, just, it's like, this is very serious. So so for us at the Met, but really for everybody in New York, I mean, those first couple months of that initial surge, March and April, where we mm-hmm. were so scared and nobody knew what was going on and we, we, we didn't have tests and Central Park had tractor truck trailers that were mobile morgues. And the sound of ambulance sirens was just omnipresent, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just constant. And I mean, that was 
that was one kind of whiplash for sure. That was a major life readjustment where my uh, my girlfriend and I did not even leave our apartment for 80 days. Yeah, we were just hunkered down the whole time. And it does give you time to think about like what are, what is it we're doing as performing artists? What is the role of the live performing arts? How is it going to look and feel going forward as we face the Delta variant and possibly future variants and, and all of this. But I mean, I think for, for a lot of people, for me, absolutely. It certainly reinforced the joy that comes from being able to do this, to do this with other human beings live in person, like to feel the sound of the airwaves vibrating in your face off of like a timpani head or a bass drum or a trumpet, you know, and and that there's something so visceral and almost intoxicating about that, that like, again, I mean, all due respect to the to the groups that have been really innovative about streaming live things and doing this. And like, thank goodness we've had these opportunities to kind of sustain us throughout the pandemic. But. I also don't think I'm alone in, in feeling like there is no substitute for live music performance. And it's meant that when and where we can get it now, we can value it all the more highly because it is precious.
This is Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle and I'm your host Lorenzo Marasso. My guest today is percussionist and Met Opera principal timpanist Jason Hoheim. And you have just listened to an excerpt of the first movement of Bella Bartok's Sonata for Two Pianos and Percussion recorded in the August 2019 at the Twickenham Music Festival and performed by our guest percussionist Jason Hoheim with Stephen White also at the percussion with pianists Madeline Stedertold and Mira Wang. One thing I'm interested, I, sometimes I ask it when you know, I, I talk to conductors or orchestra players, is that are, are you worried as an orchestra player that your orchestra will lose their sound, lose their togetherness after you know, many months, many years of not playing together? Such a good question. I um, had this experience in December of 2020 where I kind of had to face that down directly. And then I had another experience just a few weeks ago that was a repeat in some ways of that experience. And yeah, I'll be honest with you. My, my fear and anxiety was we've been away from this for so long. Like, can I even still do this? Like, yeah. like what, what is atrophying here? Right? Like, you know, listeners might not have a, a clear idea of what timpani are and look like, but timpani are these huge kettle drums, you know, 36 inches wide, literally cannot fit in New York City apartments. Yeah. And so for the better part of nine months, I could not even access my instruments at all. The best I could do is like, you know, play around on a drum pad in my apartment and, you know, you can only do so much with that. And so when when I had this incredible opportunity through my uh, friend Ed Choi, who's the principal percussionist of the Seoul Philharmonic in South Korea, um, they invited me over to play a series of concerts in, uh, you know, from like middle of November through middle of February. Mm -hmm. So November 2020 through February of 2021. And um, leapt at the opportunity, was was overjoyed to be able to do this, you know, not only to have the chance to make music again, but but to do so in a, in a safe place, right, yeah. where a country like South Korea was taking the pandemic seriously from the beginning. Yeah. And, you know, it was just culturally obvious that everyone there was adhering to public health guidelines, universal masking, all of this. And as a consequence, you know, they kept their case rates, you know, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 times lower than what was happening in the United States at comparable times. And so I, I felt not only comfortable, but like overjoyed at, at the prospect of getting to go play music again. And so, um, yeah, that that December, we did a live stream performance of Beethoven Symphony Number no. 9, which includes the famous Ode to Joy chorus and all of this. I mean, it was it was incredibly powerful and symbolic for not just us coming together as musicians to do this, but but almost like this statement of defiance yeah. in the face of how the world was facing the pandemic at that point and even what we didn't know was yet to come that that we could still gather and and be defiantly joyful. Yeah. And the experience of that was just so powerful. And and I mean to really answer your question, what I discovered was that the the hands, the chops, the arms, all of that about playing timpani, that came back really fast. Mm -hmm. Like that, I didn't really have to worry about. I, I spent enough time on the drums. I had this kind of like ramp up plan. That came back right away. 
it's it's the stuff up here in in, in my brain in my mind the, the everything that we can't really practice because it's like how ensembles communicate and how you notice these subtleties from your colleagues and it's sounds and it's the way shoulders move and it's the way you coordinate with the brass section as they all start to breathe together and all of these things that that we acclimate to over years and years of doing it but you can't practice that alone in a room yeah. there's just really no way of course yes and and so it was that that I noticed that was that was the real challenge um, that being said I mean I was impressed at how quickly we were able to pull together a pretty respectable sounding Beethoven nine with like half orchestra, right? Like one, one wind and brass to a part. Like it was a very interesting setting. Um, but, but we did it. Yeah. And, and, and similarly, I had this experience just a few weeks ago at the Lakes area music festival in Brainerd, Minnesota, where, um, again, it was this experience where, where many of my friends and colleagues there had not played together with more than a couple other humans. Um, for months, over a year in many cases. And, um, you know, Wednesday morning, July 28th, uh, I sat down for rehearsal, 10.30 a.m. in the morning behind my timpani. Uh, music director Christian Reif gets up there and says, well, you know, says, says a, few, a few words welcoming us and just sort of marking the occasion and like, let's not talk too much. Let's just let's let the music speak. Let's begin. And we started those first opening measures of Dvorak 9. And I mean, within seconds, it was clear that this was an intensely emotional experience for everybody there in the room. Um, not a dry eye in the place. Yeah. And I, I, I myself was like, okay, oh, whew, like stay focused. Don't, don't miss your entrance here. Don't, don't, right. Like I was like, okay, got to be ready for that. Um, but what was so interesting is that, you know, these rehearsals are typically two and a half hours long. We have a break. We have a break around like 1130, 1145. And the first few minutes were rocky as people were like readjusting and like, wait, how, how do we do this again? And OK, and <laughs> like some wonky intonation here and there and like some like little people jumping in holes a little bit. But man, like by the break, even like within an hour and 15 minutes, this orchestra was like a Ferrari. I mean, I was like, wow, yeah. it, it came together that quickly. And and everybody there was feeling it like and we, we were all kind of like going around at the break, talking to each other like we're, we're not just imagining this. Right. Like this, this, this vibe is real. Like this yeah. is awesome. And um, I, I don't know. I think that that says something more fundamentally important about, you know, not just what it is we do as musicians, but about how the way we approach our craft can be durable enough to sustain these prolonged periods of tragedy and deprivation and grief and trauma and everything else. And that we can still come back and make incredible music. I mean, this this concert we played that Saturday night was awesome. <laughs> if I do say so myself, I think we <laughs> sounded pretty good.
This is Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle and I'm your host Lorenzo Morasso. My guest today is percussionist and Metropolitan Opera principal timpanist Jason Hoheim. And you have just listened to an excerpt from Ludwig van Beethoven's Symphony No. 9, recorded in December 2020 in Seoul, Korea, and performed by the Seoul Philharmonic Orchestra with our guest Jason Hoheim. And you are very critical of yourself, I, I would assume. Uh, I mean, you kind of have to be, right? This is, yeah. this is the thing with, with a, a deliberate practice approach to your craft. Like, you're never fully satisfied. Yeah. And I, and I, really, I really think this is one of the, the things I find almost most difficult to cultivate in younger players and students is how to inhabit a constant place of healthy self-critique without it sort of tumbling into, like, darkness and self-loathing. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a difficult tightrope to walk, especially in high intensity, stressful performance, anxiety, high stakes, got to pay the rent. You know, all of these different things play into it yeah. for sure. But I mean, yeah, I, I I'm fortunate in that, you know, through my career, I've had all these times to like get this feedback like I was talking about. Sometimes it's from teachers, sometimes from colleagues. Other times it's from, well, I just heard this broadcast on the radio or I just have this recording of the concert and, and I'll listen back to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm listening to everything and I'm enjoying everything my colleagues are doing. And wow, the double bass has sounded awesome there during the solo in, in Verdi's Atello fourth act. Wow, God, I really nailed it. But then I'm also like listening to myself because, you know, all musicians are a little bit narcissistic. But <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> yeah, some some more than others. <laughs> some more than others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm also, you know, I'm trying to give myself feedback and I'm trying to, you know, you know, figure out like, all right, how, how did things rhythmically line up in this one spot? I thought it went this way. Did it actually go that way? You know, what was the balance right? You know, how these sticks sound, you know, too bright, not bright enough. All of these things that I'm worrying about as a timpanist. And, and I mean, the great thing about it is that like, I can, I can hear all of this and listen back and like appreciate it. And sort of like pat myself on the back for the good stuff I'm doing and the progress I've made. And yet, I'm never fully satisfied. Like, yes. I, ne- I never get an A. <laughs> you know, like, I never get 100%. It's always like, all right, A minus, B plus, like, you could have done this better, could have done this. And that's just, that's the, that's the life. I mean, that's the craft of doing this. If yeah. I guess I've heard a lot of other musicians before me say this, but like, if I ever get to the point where, I'm fully satisfied with the performance. I'm like, there's nothing better I could have done there. Yeah. Well, that's when I know I have to retire. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned about the orchestra that sounded like a Ferrari, and it comes up to mind uh, the founder of the company, Ferrari, who used to say, the next challenge is always the challenge that I'm looking forward. It doesn't matter whether we won this past weekend, the next weekend, it's always going to be the challenge that I'm, that I'm going to have to face. And so if I have like... 20 victories in my past they don't matter anything because I'm always looking ahead so it's it's in a similar mind frame or always wanting to improve it's an absolutely similar philosophy and it's interesting especially since we just came out of the summer olympics I mean there's this well-documented phenomenon where you know olympic medalists gold medal winners will have achieved this incredible thing and then they come back and like a week or two later they're depressed because now they're just like yeah, back in their apartment, you know, doing the dirty laundry. And it's like, oh, life 
life is still continuing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and so, so I do think it really is, you know, more than just even for the craft of like music making and, and, you know, yeah, developing great technique, but more importantly, saying something as an artist that in our lives, we have this approach that's like, yeah, it's, it's, you're never done, right? You, <laughs> you have an, an ongoing yeah. dedication to the craft and this kind of continuous improvement. It might be music. Again, it might be chess. It might be tennis. could be anything. This is Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle and I'm your host Lorenzo Morasso. My guest today is percussionist and Metropolitan Opera principal timpanist Jason Hoheim. And you have just listened to an excerpt from the first movement of Antonin Dvorak's Symphony No. 9 recorded in July 2021 by the Lakes Area Music Festival Orchestra of Minnesota with our guest Jason Hoheim. How do you see the future uh i mean, it, it's probably a stupid question to talk about the future. But, I mean, given these conditions, do you, do you happen to have a plan B or plan C for... <laughs> well, <laughs> you're asking about the future. And luckily, Lorenzo, I have a crystal ball here right in front of me that's, that's going to tell me exactly question. <laughs> how all this is going to look in 10 years. No, I mean, I think, I think it's a fair question. And I think it's an important question to be asking... Um, you know, not just in the, the performing arts, but but more broadly. I mean, we are we are living through this period of profound radical uncertainty as individual humans, as you know, residents of New York or California or Washington or Minnesota or wherever as a nation, as a hemisphere, as a globe. Yeah. And how we face off against that now is um, it's daunting and it it is it feels especially daunting in these moments where like we thought <laughs> we thought we got into a place where we could maybe go back to normal mm -hmm. and then we get this rude awakening it's like nope still in this and it is really hard I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it it is um It's hard from a perspective of mental health. It's hard from a perspective of fatigue. 
You know, I, I, I see this all around in my friends, family, colleagues, musicians who just wanted everything to go back to normal and are really struggling with this reality that that's not quite what it's going to be. And I mean, you, you mentioned this idea of psychic whiplash earlier, and mm-hmm. I feel it. I feel it acutely. I, in some ways, appreciated more the music making experiences I've had recently, both because of that. And like I mentioned, the sort of precious quality of those times, but also how music itself demonstrates that music itself is, is how this feels a lot of the time, whether it's going from pianissimo to sabino fortissimo and like, oh my God, like, well, well, the Washington Post just said, what about the Delta variant? Oh my God. You know, um, it happens in Bruckner. It happens in the Bartok Sonata for two pianos and percussion. Um, it happens all over the place. I mean, m- music in many ways to me is, is it exists for us to have another way to understand how this feels. And yeah, what's this going to look like five, 10 years down the road? No idea. What I do know is I believe that the same process that, you know, I sort of harnessed for my road to the mat, you know, this, this process of, of feedback driven, deliberate practice, um, has actually a lot of, um, you know, it can inform a lot and has salience for our broader situation now. Um, earlier this year, I believe it was somewhere January, February, the New York Times op-ed columnist Ezra Klein wrote a column that was talking about how democracy is really designed as a feedback loop. And that's that's how it's functioning best. Mm-hmm. And he was making the point that right now our feedback loop of democracy has been greatly damaged. And I've thought about that a lot with respect to my own approach to my craft. Uh, You know, whether it was in the nanotech lab or behind the timpani. And that there's this, at least for me, there's been this broader recognition that we're all kind of in this together in this process-based need to get feedback and be honest about our failings and our shortcomings and whether it's playing out of tune or going to the wrong websites for misinformation um, we need to be honest about what it is that is really giving us these problems we need to come up with a plan to address it and then we need to have the discipline and fortitude to actually do it. Yeah. And um, if we can do that, I feel a lot better about what, you know, the live performing arts might look like in 10 years. And, and the reason why I'm going to frame it this way is because I, I believe to my core that people, groups, organizations who are tenaciously methodical with the right incentives can accomplish tremendous things. Mm -hmm. And so I think well-led performing arts organizations that are capable 
conscientious, compassionate to their employees and their artists and sufficiently nimble Mm -hmm. will find ways to make this work. And I mean, I'll never forget, you know, I was was telling you about the the last opera I played was Cosi Fontude on March 11th. March 12th, I got up and I wrote in my journal, stay nimble, stay flexible, stay adaptable. Mm -hmm. I took that advice myself. I think it was pretty good advice. I think it will remain good advice. And so the organizations that can do that and that can adapt and can be nimble and flexible, um, I think stand a much better chance of making it through all of this. So I I had a blast uh, to finally connect with you, Jason, and thank you so much for uh, spending some time and and, and, uh, talking to me. I I love the conversation. Thank you for having me on the program, Lorenzo. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Jason. I hope you've enjoyed meeting my guest, the Metropolitan Opera principal timpanist, Jason Hoheim, and enjoy getting to know him. For now, I leave you with one final piece, an excerpt from the last movement of Anthony Dvorak's Symphony No. 9, recorded in July 2021 by the Lakes Area Music Festival Orchestra of Minnesota with our guest Jason Hoheim. And with this, I look forward to seeing you next week for another episode of Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle.